0: Hello and welcome to the D2C podcast, I'm Eric Dick. Today we're spinning a yarn with Canada's top sock maker, CEO and founder Rob Fraser from Outweigh Socks. Rob's sock strapped Outweigh to eight figure sales annually, innovating his business model to reap maximum cash flow, investing heavily into uh, just cranking affiliate program and overcoming an unwanted rebrand and coming out on the other end actually stronger for it. I hope you enjoy this value-packed conversation with Rob Fraser from Away Socks.
1: I had no business experience. What I did know is how to market to a cyclist. And so I always say to people, business is already hard enough. Pick a domain where you have unique experience and you have a competitive advantage. And so I was like, the reality is, is by building a brand that speaks to me, you know, this cyclist who loves socks and wants them for every day, there's likely still millions of people like me. Customers are smart they'll come to the conclusion on their own of what you ultimately want. So like early days, we were like, well, these are socks you can do everything in, but you can't market that message It's too unclear. If you design the product well, people will come to the understanding of how they should use it, but stay niche to get the message across. That's been a six-year lesson. Like, I didn't nail that early, and we tried a lot of things to get there, but it's been beautiful to see that work out.
0: Wrong size, wrong color, didn't look right in the living room? There are hundreds of reasons your customers return products, but returns don't have to be goodbyes. They can be an opportunity to complete the shopping experience. Built exclusively for Shopify, Loop lets you create a delightful return experience to attract and retain more customers. By making it easy for your customers to find products they love, they'll come back again and again. See why thousands of Shopify brands like Allbirds, Chubbies, and Brooklyn entrust Loop as their return partner at loopreturns.com/slash DTC. Rob, welcome to the D2C podcast. It's awesome having a Victoria Titan of e-commerce here. Just start: why did you build a Waysocks?
1: Yeah, no, happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Um, why? Okay. I mean, the honest answer is I just wanted to avoid getting a real job as, as long as possible. And so to walk it back a little bit further, previous to starting my my business that we're in now, I was actually a, a professional cyclist for 10 years. So I traveled the world racing my bike, we raced downhill mountain biking. So basically the same equivalent of like downhill skiing. So time trial style through the trees and, you know, the person with the fastest time from top to bottom uh, without They're killing themselves wins the race. So did that for 10 years and was kind of like on this path of, you know, in hindsight was a very entrepreneurial path, you know, I was like kind of in control of my own destiny, I was doing my own thing, I was was going after this larger than life goal. Uh, And then You know, I was kind of in my early 20s, um, and it's a young guy sport. I'm looking like, hey, is there going to be the possibility of turning this into a career that has economic stability far past, you know, my 30s? And am I going to make it to that level? And what are the likelihoods? And, you know, although that year I decided to walk away from the sport, I was ranked second in uh, in Canada. Uh, It just wasn't clear whether or not I was going to be able to make it happen. So um, kind of I was like 23, 24 years old, still pretty young. I was like... You know, I've gonna walk away from this sport, the thing I've dreamt of and worked my basically entire life for. That my entire kind of like early teens until late 20 or mid twenties, like chasing this dream. It's like, well, what do I do next? You know, like I'm not built for the real world, you know, I'm like I'm kind of I've I've gone after this really large goal and kind of accomplished a lot of my dreams and kind of what I set my mind to, and and it taught me a different way of thinking. And so I I just kind of entered this two-year period of, you know, what do I do next? And so I kind of was like, well, the next logical thing is to go back to school and maybe get some sort of education in sport, in sport management. So here in Victoria, I went to Camosun College for that, and I was just trying to kind of like kick the can down the road. As you said, just kind of like avoid, you know, the real job, the real... Responsibilities, and um, so did the first year there. And it was like, I got a job actually at the Sport Institute, working with athletes and and doing that sort of thing, working with future athletes and future Olympians and helping guide them. And and it was like, this ain't it. This isn't gonna you know fill my cup. This is, I'm, I, I can see too much. I want to do here. There's far too many limitations. So going to my second year of school, it's like I need to start a business. I think that sounds like something interesting to do. Uh, I had no business experience. I had no real clear idea of what I was going to do, but. I was just laying a bed like what's the next really large goal I can set and just try to do it. You know, I've done it once before. And that was that's how it came to be yeah
0: it seems like a pretty good metaphor actually uh you know the climb of when you gotta go up the hill to start uh you know entre- entrepreneurship and mountain biking in a way right because once you know you gotta you gotta do that heavy climb up up, up to the start and then once you start going downhill things come at you pretty fast
1: yeah yeah I mean <laughs> for sure and like yeah when I first started my business like things were coming at me fast made a lot of a lot of mistakes which we can get into but uh yeah ultimately like you know why I wanted to get into business I just wanted to kind of like go after that really big goal again I wanted to build something I wanted to be creative I wanted to build a team I wanted to build a physical thing that I could ship into the world and kind of use a lot of the skills I had acquired as an athlete kind of booking my own travel going around the world marketing myself negotiating sponsorships all these kind of like skills that in hindsight again was very entrepreneurial I wanted to use those for business this time be like well can I make a run at this and uh And then, like, why socks? You know, socks were, um, as a cyclist, socks are are woven into the culture. It's actually a way that we express ourselves. There's a term in in cycling called sock doping. Um, And so, doping's obviously got a a stigma to it now in cycling. But uh, that was a simple kind of plan where it's to say, like, hey, whoever's got the coolest socks is kind of like leveling up on everyone else. So, um, when I transitioned out of cycling into just regular life, I realized, hey, these cycling socks are, are fun, but they're not that great for all day performance. They're good on the bike, they're not very comfortable for standing all day and so like when i looked at the apparel landscape it was pretty obvious that everything with lululemon and all their brands had moved from kind of sport specific active wear into all day active wear and athleisure and when i looked at the sock category it seemed to have been left behind it was still dress socks or sport specific socks or socks for x y and z there was no like i kind of say yoga pant for the foot there was no like functionally technically advanced sock that also looked really nice and was self-expressive and could transition seamlessly from work play and activity. And so I kind of said, I was like, well, there's something that doesn't exist at least to my standard. And I can learn how to build that. Then I can learn how to market it, sell it. And, and that was the simple insight of like, okay, maybe I'll do that. Yeah.
0: And good, good, sh- you know, low cost to ship as well. Good cost of goods. What would you say in that early part was you mentioned some mistakes. What would you say early on? What was a, What was a mistake you made early on? The
1: most notable one, and I think is is quite common now, having chatted with a lot of entrepreneurs, is who I decided to go into business with. And so, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know. And so, like the next, like the thing I think most entrepreneurs find themselves in is like, well, who am I friends with at the time, right? Or who, like, who? Am, for in this case, it was who am I going to school with and who am I doing most of my school projects with? Hey, I'm going to start this little sock business. You want to do it with me? So, you know, I, I built a good relationship with a buddy in, in college and we got on well and we actually worked together outside of school. And I was like, Hey, I'm going to do this. You know, do you want to come do it with me? I've got a good idea of how to execute and we'll split it 50, 50. And, you know, we'll have fun because, you know, this isn't going to work, you know, like we're going to sell socks, you know, like it's, and we don't know anything and we're in school and we're just going to kind of kill time for the next three years before we graduate and then figure out what's going to happen. So uh, I'd say the biggest mistake is, you know, that I didn't take the time to consider what happens if it does go right. And it, it did. And, uh, and unfortunately, as it started to go right, we found that, uh, there was a misalignment on kind of the end goal and what it really means to work hard. And, and, and ultimately it boiled down to nothing to fault him. It's just that he was not entrepreneurial. You know, I just kind of like invite him into, invited him into this journey. And, uh, if you're not kind of cut out for that journey, as, as you would know, and many others, it's, it's, it's a hard path, you know, and there's much easier ways to make money. There's, there's much easier ways to stay sane. And so ultimately a year and a half into the business, that kind of, that relationship sort of exploded, almost took the business down. We didn't have a shareholder agreement, no proper resolutions. And, uh, so that was my first, uh, my first learning experience of not spending $5,000 on a shareholder agreement and spending, you know, over six figures to, to resolve the issue a year and a half later. So I just coined that now as like, or, or think about that as that was my MBA. You know, I learned a lot during that time, but that was, that, that was the first notable mistake. There's like really small mistakes in there as well, but uh, that one's like the one that almost took it, took it down. Yeah.
0: Let's just talk about your growth journey as well for a second here. How many years are you into the business and where are you at now, essentially? What what, what can you say?
1: Yeah, so um, we are in our sixth year now, just passed. So I started in the fall. Uh, I, I kind of said the first time I put it out into the world that we're building this was September 4th, 2016. It was an Instagram post saying, you know, here's the brand name and we're going to launch a product soon i still had no idea what it was uh, but we're going to run a contest and you know get some hype going um and so yeah we're six years in i initially put in a thousand dollars you know like i was so uh green with business that i thought the only way to run a business was to run a profitable one. I didn't know you could raise money. I didn't even know you could get debt. I just, you know, coming from the athlete world, like it's impossible to get loans to travel and stuff like that. So I was like, I got to I gotta make money racing and I got to reinvest it. So I was like, okay, I got to make sure the unit economics of this business work. And uh, so anyways, yeah, I put a grand in and we actually used that grand and grew the business to over 10 million in revenue the next three, four years after that, without taking any outside money in, which was, Pretty cool. Um, and just by like definitely in the early days not knowing I could. So we just had to like I just beat it into my system that look, we're gonna find unique ways to build an economic engine in this business, find ways to push out cash flow, get terms. We can talk about all the specifics, but um and then yeah, and then this year we're targeting doing more revenue than we've done the past five years in just this year alone. So um it's it's grown quite a lot. It went from just like me in my basement suite to now we're 25 people in a in an office and uh we've built multiple businesses within our business too, with like a white label program. We manage our own fulfillment warehouse and a bunch of other cool things. So yeah, it's been a journey.
0: It sounds like you've been able to get consistent traction with it, which is really cool. Talk about the the early days and what was the most essential component for traction uh, out of the gate in those early days? You, just, you mentioned running a contest to generate hype and that already alludes a little bit to kind of like how you, how you're thinking about distribution in the early days.
1: Yeah. Like, I really just, I didn't, I didn't know much about how to, to market traditionally. What I did know, it came from the athlete space. So right off the bat, I was like, okay, well, the best way to kind of market an athletic brand is to, A, sponsor athletes. So I built like a kind of grassroots brand ambassador network. And luckily I had some friends that were still pros. And so I was able to leverage my past relationships to get my socks on people much more, much higher level than I would be able to pay for in the early days. And they do me a favor. Um, and then beyond that, I was like, well, we need to meet our customers where they are and where they are is at all of these different events and races. So how do we partner with those events and races to get socks on people's feet? If our product is gonna be like one of the biggest marketing engines for us, meaning that the quality is so great once people try it, they're gonna come back and want more. The question I'd ask myself is how do we just get more socks on people's feet and how do we do that at scale? And then the beauty of this model too is, hey, I can go to Red Bull. And that was one of my early targets. I was like, Red Bull puts the best events on ever. I really idolized the brand, how they've built this perception around the brand that's really selling sugar water. It's it's phenomenal. It's a great story. Um, I was like, how do I partner with them? So I just hunted them down on LinkedIn, got some connections and really like you know, forced my, my, my way in the door. And so we sponsored their Red Bull 400 event in Whistler, where we were able to give every participant a pair of socks, a pair of co-branded socks. And the beauty of that is it's say it's a $20,000 commitment. We can do it with in-kind value. So $20,000 of retail socks only actually costs us, you know, much less than that. So we're getting $20, $20, $20,000 worth of value for say $5,000. And so that was a, a really easy way for us to get socks on people's feet then we could use the packaging on the back of those socks for example to have a referral code or some sort of discount saying hey you like these socks check out our website use this code get more now we've captured their email we can remarket that we can re- you know send them an email or whatever so i just did that we did that at the red bull 400 we sponsored crankworks we did all the local victoria stuff any small race i'd go with a table and a, a little display and just stand there in the rain for like you know, four hours and be like, buy my socks, you know, really grassroots. I just kind of pound the payment for at least two years. We didn't spend any money on Facebook ads for two years, nothing traditional. Everything was just product and kind partnerships, grassroots ambassadors. And I look back, as like, I'm glad I didn't spend money because like, it really forced me to deeply understand the customer. It forced us to really build a base of customers that love the product. And then we were able to scale from there. We had a deep understanding of how to make that work and how to actually deliver on our promise rather than kind of like, I always say, like, if you pay to play too early, you muddy up your data and you don't truly know who's sticky. Um, We knew who was sticky. Uh, And so when we were time to, to pay, it was like, it's time to push go.
0: It's interesting too, because you start in a, in a fairly niche audience. It's a growing audience of professional bikers, right? And you build that sort of like authenticity, that connection to the outdoors, the sort of you, you kind of inf- steep the brand in that a little bit. But I'm curious, is that still your core audience at this point? Or have you, know, have you I, I, obviously to scale to as far as you have, you're, you've gone beyond the outdoor biking niche into outdoor everything, right?
1: Yeah, for sure. And that was one of the lessons I learned early on is like, if you try to sell to everyone, you sell to no one. Right. And so like I wanted to stay niche and, and look, I had no business experience. What I did know is how to market to a cyclist. Right. And so I always say to people is like, if they're going to get into their first business, business is already hard enough. Pick a domain where you have unique experience and you can maybe you have a competitive advantage. And so I was like, the reality is, is by building a brand that like speaks to me, you know, this this cyclist who loves socks and wants them for every day. There's likely still millions of people like me. So by staying super niche, it is a quite large audience. Sure, it's not billions of people and it's not everyone in Canada, but it can actually develop meaningful traction. And then you actually ask yourself, okay, well, what's another tangential sport to cycling? So the natural evolution, there was like trail running and road running, similar kind of sports and then the natural thing from there is what are, what are cyclists and runners do they go to the gym in the off season so i started asking myself like what are all the, the things that circulate Are these people act or they're actively doing two or three of them and then the beautiful thing by that is as we scaled those audiences the reality was so our core audiences now are bike run workout and adventure slash hiking and the beautiful thing about those four sports is that they are cross training and everyday activities of every other sport Right, And so like a football player runs or rides a bike or goes to the gym for cross training for their core sport. The opposite is not true. A marathon runner doesn't play football for cross training. It's actually probably quite detrimental to their sport. Right, So it's pretty cool that like by staying niche and talking to a specific audiences, we are actually talking to a very large audience of people that participate in the sport. And it kind of like, we just call it like macro to micro and it's how we kind of approach most things. And uh, yeah, and we've just grown those audiences. And the, the actually nice thing to see is customers are smart they'll kind of come to the conclusion on their own of what you ultimately want. So like early days we were like, well, these are socks. You can do everything in like, that is truly what we're building, but you can't market that message. It's too, it's too unclear of what the purpose is. But all of our customer reviews usually start by saying, or most of them, you know, I bought these for cycling, but I realized I can wear them to work and I love wearing them to like these events I go to, they look great. I get so many compliments. I'm like, yes, you get it. That's exactly what I'm saying. And the most, the best part about that is they're going to tell someone else. Right. And so, okay, let's whip up an affiliate you know, program now and let them tell the story. And so like, um, that's been a beautiful thing to see is that like, if you design the product, well, people will come to the understanding of how they should use it, but stay niche to get the message across clear and acquire them in the first place. It's kind of been the, that's been a six year lesson though. You know, like I didn't nail that like early and we tried a lot of things to get there, but, uh, uh, it's been beautiful to see that
0: work out. You've got the added benefit also of your products being more consumable because if someone's running in socks every day, I'm I'm sure they're very good, high-quality socks, but they're going to consume those socks too, right? Like they would a pair of running shoes eventually. So it's like they're kind of repeat buyers, I imagine.
1: Yeah, you're right. And um, there's actually a lot of – things and look everything i'm gonna say on this podcast this chat is like not a master plan i figured this out by virtue of doing um which i think is an important lesson too is like if you never get started and you don't actually just try you never figure these things out like there was no one to ask these questions i didn't have access to anybody but what we found was you're right you said earlier in the in the chat that like they're a low-cost item. There's pretty decent margins. They're easy to ship, warehouse. They're unisex with a low size curve, low return rates. Health Canada says you can't try them anyway, so it's a, it's a natural direct-to-consumer play. All these things. I just I just wanted to make socks, though. These were just added benefits of me trying. And then yeah, you're right. Like there's other reasons that the sock business is kind of great. There's a high repeat purchase rate, not only because they wear out and they have a natural um, kind of consumable life to them, but also we add in a lot of expressive design. And so we have people actually collecting them as well. So they're not even waiting for it to wear out. There's actually an added benefit of like, oh, I need a hundred pairs because I love all of the animal ones you do, or I love all the outdoor ones, or, hey, you just did a gold retriever sock and I have a gold retriever. And so we're tapping into multiple reasons that people would buy our socks. But what's also great is that our number one selling sock is like a white ankle sock, which I think is a testament to the product quality because like you don't see it and it's very boring. But if you went on our website, you would see all of the kind of pizzazz. We call it like the peacocking. Like it gets people in. They love the yeah. fun sock and then they put it Sock-toping. on. We, yeah, exactly. We say, you know, <laughs> you know come for the design, stay for the performance is what we say. So uh
0: This is amazing. I I, so I've done uh, marketing at different companies for a long time. And I was like the first to really bring to the market like really nice designed business socks with like, you know, bright colors and the logos built in and they were just the biggest hit on the uh, the B2B circuit. So I can I can see the appeal. I wanted to go back to your, you, you know, you've you've built this amazing, you've fanned the ember, you've built the ember, you've got the ember, you've got the authenticity coming from this amazing community that you've actually been a part of. Then you start hitting the gas with paid social. What 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 has been your experience with uh, Meta Ads specifically?
1: It's evolved over time, as you'd know. Like you know, in the early days when we started, we we're probably arguably pretty poor at it. But like, given the efficiency of the platform, like it was doing pretty well. But I would say, like, I've talked to a lot of other you know DTC brand owners and e-commerce brands and they've grown a lot off ads and our, our growth has definitely come from our efforts and a lot of other channels. So I'd say like, you know, on 10 million revenue, like we would spend maybe one to 2 million in ads. So like the MER is really strong and we're not like overspending it on, on Facebook to get there. We are now, because like as you know, as you like, you're scaling eight figures plus. You like, you have to kind of start to pay to play, and there's there's a lot of spend that goes into it. But I could talk more like relevantly of like what we're thinking about right now with all the changes that's going on. Like, it, it's really gone back to what I even call almost like billboard marketing. You know, like it's hard to target people. Um, you're basically trying to stop people on their scroll, and you don't know exactly who you're you're going to be showing up in front of. So, what we're aiming to do is actually just use a lot more user-generated content. That's not anything like crazy. That's not anything new. We want to look fairly organic in the feed so that like polish doesn't do very well right now. And so like we want to look very organic and then just talk about like those added benefits, show the storytelling of the product. You really have to just catch an eye and get people to obviously just like work on the funnel. It's really shifted a lot more to kind of like traditional marketing, which we're good at, because we're good at storytelling. We're great at, you know, explaining what why our socks are special. And that took like years of being at trade shows answering that single question 100 times a day. But uh, yeah, capturing the person's attention online, sending them somewhere on the website where they can learn more, hopefully capturing their email, being able to explain that story even more, and then maybe by the seventh touch point, they're purchasing. And in terms of just how we're scaling Facebook, though, we're obviously shifting more to like just a, a cocktail TV model, like how much can we pay? Like how far can we push that payback period out? And then how we're tracking it is, we're looking at ROAS, obviously, but keeping ourselves sane by looking at MER. So if $1 in this month, what's the revenue out of it as a whole, looking at it holistically, because we know where are we underwater? Where are we good? Where are we exceeding? And when can we push on the gas a little bit more? Found that by trying to get too granular in, in a short time timeframe, uh, you're just going to drive yourself nuts. You know, it's just like, it's, there's too much, you know, like attribution leaks and we're, we're trying to, you know, like work on all that. with. We use triple whale right now as well. So we're getting a little more visibility, but, um, yeah, so maybe not like a very specific answer, but I would say like in terms of total like mix right now, it makes up about probably our spend is about close to around twenty percent of revenue right now on, on a month, which is Pretty good, you know, we're still, um, we've got a, a very large retained audience, which helps, and like we talked about earlier, it's like we have a, a high repeat customer rate too, it's like the, the actual just frequency of designs. We drop new designs every month, so it keeps things fresh and exciting. But yeah, that's how we're kind of thinking about Facebook. We're obviously dabbling more into TikTok too, and actually something we're really excited about right now is affiliate referral.
0: iOS 14.5 the infamous Apple update left DTC brands struggling to find and market to the right audiences. That's why hundreds of DTC brands are turning to Black Crow AI to boost their holiday marketing. Their plug and play machine learning technology measures in real time every visitor's likelihood to buy. You can then use these predictions to build predictive audiences for retargeting and prospecting. In short, Black Crow AI can significantly boost ROAS by helping you specifically target people who will actually want to buy from you. Find out why brands like Magic Spoon, Barabee, and Liquid IV are using Black Crow AI to supercharge their holiday marketing efforts. Visit blackcrow.ai slash DTC to request a 30-day free trial. I want to share this idea just because it came off of a podcast we just did recently with Songfinch. They're a company that makes songs for people, essentially. And all of their ads, they call reveals, which are just like, so it's like revealing the song that you're giving to someone or whatever. So I'm always urging advertisers to think about ways that they could make, turn their products into that sort of reveal type experience, whether it's literally revealing the new socks or something like that. But I just, I think there's something in that idea of like revealing as a way to like hook people into into something, whether whether it's a gifting experience or... I don't know any other kind of socking experience. I think that there might be something there.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, that's generally the tone we go for with our UGC is like, it's people receiving their order and they're kind of surprised about what they've got. Like, we offer mystery products, et cetera. Sometimes we'll try to um, keep that kind of element of surprise. They're like, oh, I got these. And they're talking about like, open, like they're kind of like experiencing the features all at once. And so like, I think you're developing that kind of like you're living vicariously through that ad and like almost experiencing yourself receiving that package. So you'd have like some level of trust and ex- expectation of if I was to order, what am I going to get? Oh, it's going to come in this black compostable polymailer. Okay, cool. The soft look like this oh they're real hey there's someone real that has the real product especially in this digital world where you don't know if something's drop shipped or fake or scammy or whatever it's like it's really like i think a a high level of trust is important and loop again but that's why like the affiliate kind of model we're, we're kind of leaning into a lot right now but um yeah i agree like having that kind of like package and trying to walk the through the ad, walk that person through like the trust element of like, this is exciting. And, and we have luckily a, uh, an exciting product and a very visual product too that it's quite easy to be, you know, like uh, happy about it. Everyone loves socks, especially as an adult when your parents stop buying them for you, you know. It's like, uh, this that it's a good
0: feeling. Walk me through your affiliate program. What What's winning with affiliates right now?
1: I think like over the past while, especially on Shopify, I was unsatisfied with like the different offerings in the app store and just Shopify native, like any, any kind of affiliate solution. I think there is a lot of like good apps that would solve the very basics. Like, okay, here's the offer. And then here's the referral, like the affiliate payout, like fine. But then there's like a lot of second, third, fourth order effects of like, you know, multiple discount creation, how it's getting picked up by honey, all these other things that you don't consider. How is it like, is it first order, second order? Does it continue? Does it not continue? What are the different ways to pay out? There's all of these kind of like other considerations that would just a certain level of skill start to break all your systems and cause a lot more pain than, than you're gaining in terms of like the affiliate program. And then we came across this app called Social Snowball, which I was like, I just basically put out like an SOS tweet one day. I was like, what? Here's what I'm looking for. Here's all the things I want. I want like, I need an affiliate app that's hits these certain metrics I need like them to have a built-in bulk discount code generated and then I need to have some sort of fraud detection and all these things because like I've just kind of we've tried the other ones and they've not worked for us and Once I found the app, the simple insight was like, well, we already have a very word of mouth product, like the number, like the other thing in our reviews we always see is I get a ton of compliments on my socks, right? So we said, well, how do we arm our customers with the ability to say that even louder and earn some rewards on it? And so we found the app, it looked really good. Then we wanted to think like, well, what's a good affiliate offer? How do we really like kind of incentivize people to go for it? So we came up with like, give 15% off get $15 cash. We want it like super simple. The insight there is like percentage-based reward is not that great because you're like forcing the consumer to like, A, rely on the other person to buy more and Then you have to do math. And that's like just messy. It's just like, I don't, what's 20% of the sale? I don't know. I don't really care to know. It's like, you're going to get 15 bucks no matter what. And how we got there is like, well, we know our AOV. We know what we're willing to spend. We know what the projected ROI on this is going to be. And it's success-based, right? So like if we don't get an affiliate sale, we got a small hurdle on the the you know subscription cost for the app. But we know that like, this is either going to work or it's not. And like, we can adjust as we go. And, you know, we launched it within 24 hours, had over a thousand affiliates signed up. um, And it's just been climbing thousands a week since basically. Um, And the revenue generated off it is just incredible. I'd say it's like just another addition to the mix now that allows us to fully fill out the funnel. Like, especially, you know, if we're pushing if we're willing to accept a lower return on ad spend on Facebook, like how do we arm those people to affiliate afterwards or get them an email and really just increase lifetime value. And some of the things that we've seen off the bat is one, it's getting us uh, consistently four to five X return. So like, you know, we're paying that $15 in and we're getting four to five X on it per sale, um, which is great like exceptional, you know, like it's like old Facebook days, you know, like we're just like, and so, you know, it's, it's increasing uh, blended MER and everything uh, cost per acquisition, which is awesome. The other thing, which was interesting is we, in our assumptions, we thought that there'd be a suppression to average order value because we're offering uh, obviously a discount on first purchase, right? 15% off of the first purchasing. But kind of what we learned was, well, I failed to realize it's like, well, word of mouth sales are high trust. So the people that are coming in are they, we've seen them buying a lot more. AOV actually climbed over $10 for us. And we're talking like an under hundred, we're selling socks, right? So like it's climbed by almost 20% just since launching the affiliate program and on affiliate orders, it's much higher as well. So we're like super bullish on it right now. People are stoked on it. It's uh It's been funny to see kind of how much people have run with it. We have people whipping up their own kind of little promotional sites, their own promotional videos, putting it in their Instagram bios. So it's like it's been really interesting to see. And we, like, one of the main things we wanted to be sure of is that it wasn't eroding the brand. So we wanted the offer to be true. We wanted it to be fair, slightly better than a newsletter sign up, but nothing too crazy. First time order only, you know, all the kind of things you'd want to consider because we do prioritize brand quite heavily in terms of just like we, we want to have a lot of longevity in what we're building. But uh, yeah, super bullish on it. It's working really well. Uh, it's generated you know multi five figures, almost six figures um, in like three weeks. So it's, it's, it's working for us.
0: And it makes every channel better too. So any, any paid acquisition that comes in, they'll have an opportunity to be exposed to the affiliate program, which could just make them more valuable in the long run as well. It's, It's the gift that keeps on giving, it sounds like. And it sounds a lot like, you know, in the notes that you sent over to me about this idea of developing an economic engine, like rather than slinging a product or even building a brand, I really like the way you phrase that, that you're building an economic engine. Can you talk about, and specifically how that relates to cash flow, being able to, you know, generate good cash flow. Can you talk a little bit about how you've tweaked your economic engine to generate cash flow?
1: Yeah, for sure. This was, um, again, going to sound like a master plan, but it was just like really just evolved over time. And so yeah, all the things we do in the business, we do in a way to just increase cash flow and, and ultimately be as profitable as we can. And just like, because we were bootstrapped for so long, we did raise in the, in the fall, uh, just to like further accelerate these things. But like, up until, you know, like November of last year, we were fully bootstrapped. And so like cash was king. And we're also a, a product brand. So we hold close to the half a million dollars to a million dollars of inventory, right? So cash is super important. We're basically converting dollar bills into socks and hoping we can sell the socks to convert them into a higher amount of dollar bills. That's that's our business, uh, really basic terms, right? So, But early days when starting with the business, I was like a Tupperware full of socks at, at school, selling them one pair at a time. And I'm sitting in class and I get an email from one of my old sponsors at Hustle Milk. And she goes, hey, I see you just like started a little sock company. I need 500 pairs of custom branded socks for our event and I was like and she's like can you do that I was like well yeah I mean I I don't see why not you know I know how to make socks now that's my new expertise so I kind of hopped into illustrator uh did a quick little mock-up basically a black sock with muscle milk up the back I was like do you like these she's like yeah send me a bill for for uh for 500 and so I sent her a bill it was like three thousand dollars paid it Uh, She paid it right then. I was like, well, I better make these now and deliver them. I was like, okay, cool. Like that was a lot easier than selling one pair at a time. It was a completely different business because like it was white label. So we weren't attaching our brand to it. It was just a separate brand and offering we were using. And so we've actually scaled that business up as it's a sub brand of ours called Custom Labs. So we offer full white label solution for socks for any other brands, companies, events, et cetera and the unique thing about this for like the economic engine and cash flow is that if you look at our current model with like the direct to consumer business we're purchasing product up front so it's cash out then we're paying to market it cash out and then anticipating some level of return right and so it's a very high constraint on cash and so you generally in order to scale that business would need to raise a lot of money or take on debt or or have extremely high margins some kind of huge success right at the gate which is like as you know very uncommon so the benefit of the white label business and you have
0: markdowns too right
1: totally yeah you there's markdowns like, at the end of it as well yeah there's a lot of things working not in your favor on that model um, it works at scale and over time but not in the early days but with the white label business like the muscle milk example we are the zero risk right so there's the lead that comes in we're selling the lead we're capturing the sale in advance then we've got a 30-day production time so we've captured money day one 30 days where we take to, to deliver the product plus 60-day terms on the on the actual manufacturer. So there's 90 days of free cash flow where I know our product costs and our margins. I save the savings that I owe the manufacturer and immediately invest the profits into the branded side of the business to buy more inventory, market the product. And so by scaling the white label business, we we're able to inject that cash. It was our investor. Custom Labs was our, our number one investor, and it didn't take any equity. And it, it doesn't. There's no debt. It's like the the perfect investor ever. Uh, and so I, we spun that up to a multi seven figure business that still runs. I hired someone to run it full time, and we have a couple people on that team. Um, and we make socks for Red Bull and CCM and other large brands and. Uh, we're just a trusted provider.
0: Soon D2C. We need to get this on our uh, on our referral program. I think we probably need some custom branded D2C outweigh socks. All day. Yeah, no problem. What's been the biggest engine in growing this then? Is it, is it word of mouth? Like what's been, the, what's been the biggest engine to grow this side of the business?
1: Yeah, the early days for that was like, we didn't have a lot of brand reputation. So it was just buying Google AdWords, you know, like the other beautiful thing about socks is like, there's not a lot of people that have built the infrastructure to actually facilitate a really good custom sock business. Like building supply chain that can deliver a fully customized from scratch, like a spool of yarn to a D2C sock in two weeks, is incredibly hard from like overseas and get the margins to make sense that you could then resell those if you want or give them away incredibly hard. But we had two things working for us. We had like the inline business that developed trust and relationship with the business. And then we use the custom business to scale volume. So it lowered our inline product cost and increased our ability to get better margins and speed on the custom business. So it was by building both businesses at once that gave us the kind of leverage to actually move into this model and, and dominate. Um, so in the early days, we just bought Google AdWords, put them to a simple landing page, capture email. I would, I did it all too. I, I like ran all that i would email the person design the sock send it to the factory have it ship do invoice myself did that for like two three years of like and it spun it up to you know multi seven figures just like off the side of my desk and and then the uh, the real insight was i actually met with a you know andrew wilkinson in town and i was telling him about my custom business and he's like why don't you like hire a GM to just run that for you? Like it's off the side of your desk, it sounds like, and it could be much bigger. And so we, uh, last year, just uh, I put uh, my main guy, Johnny, on, on top and he runs that business now. We have a dedicated designer and a marketer on that team too, and uh, they're taking the ball and running. We've introduced custom caps. We're building out that program. We'll look at opportunities to, to go into different verticals, maybe acquire smaller um, promotional brands, et cetera, really spin that up. And in the p that business looks like a software business because it's all drop shipped. It's low, low labor, no marketing costs for the most part. You know, it's pretty, pretty exceptional. I'm pretty comfortable talking about you because like the actual hard part of that business to build is the supply chains. It's not marketing it. It's not building a landing page. Like these are, these are easy things to do um, and you can learn and you can figure it out. You can get techie and nerdy, but like the supply chain is like, you have to just like, it's exceptionally difficult and it's not impossible, but uh that's been something we've used to develop that economic engine fund ourselves and, and also diversify because like that business relies completely on different market conditions than our inline business. And so pre COVID that was actually the largest side of our business. And then obviously COVID wiped out conferences, schools, everything. And that business took a huge nosedive. But then, as you know, COVID really benefited e-commerce brands. So our inline business shot to the sky. And so like, And now we've kind of come like our econ business is still quite a lot bigger than custom because it's grown and scaled exponentially since then. But uh, customs crawling back now. So the whole business itself and profitability and scale is like all coming back. And it's pretty cool. But it it makes me sleep a little easier at night knowing that, like, hey, I've got a couple knobs that turn on and off here and a couple levers to pull that that rely on different uh, different conditions.
0: I'm really curious because I've been following you since the Endure days when you were the Endure brand. You've recently rebranded to Outweigh. What made that happen and how's it going? I, it's funny. I just had a friend tell me he just worked. He's a fractional CMO and he worked with a brand to uh, refresh the website. He didn't change the brand name, but he ended up changing some of the market economics. He changed the. He tried to move it to a higher price tier and he was just sort of telling me that it was a bomb and that he actually, they are right in the process of re-putting the brand back together. They lost, they lost some of that brand equity. How has, why did the rebrand happen and how's it going?
1: Yeah, I'm um, restricted for how much I can say around why, but the, 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 the kind of marketing terms or whatever the public terms saying is like, you know, we got an email in November and basically we were forced to the decision that was kind of go down one kind of gnarly path or, or take the opportunity to evolve the brand and change the name. Okay. So that's kind of like set the stage. It was, a lot of people can drive, probably figure out what's going on, but Which is unfortunate and I would say like, look, we didn't want to change the name, we didn't want to rebrand And we actually did a lot of things right to kind of protect against this, but the other side of business is it's not always who's right, it's who has deeper pockets. So, um, you know, that's just how the game works. And if you don't learn to play the game, then you just opt out. So we decided to just play the game and, and just do what we could take control of. And also just recognize like, look, we could go down one route and spend a lot of money and time unfocused or we could just get something done and do it right and then just refocus on building our business. So we decided to, let's use this opportunity to evolve and um, so, yeah, we didn't want to, we definitely didn't need another project, you know, we didn't need to go through, uh, we were in like a really great growth phase. We just closed our financing ground and like literally the next day it was like, boom. Um, so it kind of like threw for a loop, but uh, it was really kind of like, I look back and I'm thankful for it at the same time because like a lot of great things have come out of it. And, like my, it's deepened my understanding of brand, our customer base, how we can maneuver with the different things we do in the future. I would say um, with your example you pitched, people don't like change as much as they think they do or say they do. Uh, And customers really like a level of familiarity. So I would say in the case of the refresh and the price, um, brands often do that because they maybe think they've tried everything else. and and, And as people in the business every day, these things do get stale to us, but you got to remember that your customer rarely goes on your site, rarely looks you up. Like they want familiarity, not difference. You know, they're not on it 24 hours a day like founders are like tweaking button colors and fonts and stuff like that. Like you can go down a rabbit hole of thinking these things move the needle and they do in some aspects, but in the early days, just kind of like, you know, chill on that a little bit and, and get back to building a great product. But in our case, I think why, well, to jump to the end and then tell you how, like it, it went really well. So like we're stoked, we ran from injure to outweigh. Um, I can talk about kind of how we got there. And I think why it went well compared to like the examples of when it doesn't is we were super honest with our community. We have like a really bought in consumer. We're able to communicate with a lot of them through socials like a large social following, a large email list. And I'd ask myself early on, like who does a, a rebrand or a name change effect it changes the people that know about us. A little bit of like our ability to get future people to know about us. So you lose a little bit of like SEO and stuff with changing a name. But everyone in front of us doesn't know us from a hole in the wall. So like, let's just forget about that. We can, we can teach them about our new name. Let's just focus on the people that know about us. And so we're just saying, this is happening. We made a YouTube video series talking about why it happened, told our story, and really invited our community to come in along on the journey. Because what I recognized was like, they don't want change, but if we feel like they're getting behind us on something we don't necessarily want to do but have to do, they'll buy in to the fact that like we're on this ride and we're gonna like support and jurin that way and like show those it's a David and Goliath kind of thing. So we wanted to arm our audience with like this is happening. We also want your input. We're going to change our name. So I want to talk to a thousand of you and understand why did you first purchase from us? Why do you continue to purchase from us? What's our brand mean to you? Because if we're going to change our name, let's make it a name that tells that story, champions that mission. And so that's the process we went on. Like, we're going to bring you along for the journey. We're going to take all your advice in. We're going to take this time to not only change our name, we're going to evolve our logo. We're going to evolve our product and prove everything. We spent like six months, literally just making everything better. um, So that like when we launched in May of this year, it was just like, you know, just taking everything our customers told us they wished was better and was there with our own kind of like grain of salt. Obviously, you don't want to just like just do what the customer are saying, but, um, and made those improvements. And, you know, what is Outweigh? Outweigh doesn't technically mean anything, but when we asked our customers, like, why do you, why do you come to our brand? What's the product mean? What we always heard is people bought our socks for X. And X was some pursuit of their personal best, whether it was their marathon they were training for, it was an event they were speaking at. So we ultimately like, distilled our brand down to our, our mission to like, inspiring personal bests. And I felt like, well, in order to do that, people have to be willing to put themselves out there and carve their own way. And so our name was an amalgamation of those two things, Outweigh. So the way is your mission. It's your personal best. We're here to inspire that. I think brand is super important. I know there's like a debate on that. I think like it's, it is at least to our customer and why they buy us. And like socks are a piece of clothing you put on in the morning. It's the first thing you put on. You look down at them. You see them. You're complimented on them. And there is an emotional aspect to it. And we wanted to really bring that to life with the new brand. So there's there's a lot that I could talk. I could go for days about the rewrite because it was so in-depth. But uh, that was the gist of it.
0: And good ones feel so much better than mediocre ones. Like the difference between a good pair of socks and a mediocre or bad pair of socks, just like when you put it on your foot is, is just, is an experience. So I, I think that's, that's gotta be part of it as well.
1: Yeah. And it's overlooked, you know, like it's uh, it's, it's honestly some of the last things people think about. Um, like we I can't tell how many times we see like someone will spend four grand on a new bike and clothing and then just wear like a, like a holy pair of socks from the department store that they've got. It's like, yo, this could be better. Um, there's a reason. So yeah, you're right. It's overlooked. And so people, that's another part of like, we hear in our reviews is like, I didn't know socks could be this good. It's like, well, here we are.
0: <laughs> do you do anything in Merino wool? I'm just, I've recently just become a massive fabric advocate of Merino wool. What's, what's your stance on wool?
1: I love it. Um, I think it's like a fantastic natural fiber, you know, its ability to create a microclimate that both keeps you cool and warm. Like it's, it's a fantastic yarn, We have, actually, toques and beanies in Merino right now that just launched for fall, winter. And then we have some Merino socks coming in the fall, winter, specifically a hiking-specific sock we've got going. Um, And then we're looking to actually weave um, more wool into the footbeds of some of our specific socks, replacing cotton. Because I'm just like, I don't like cotton. I know it feels great and its benefits, but I don't love a yarn that will kill you if you get lost, you know? so. What do you mean? um, so like if you wear a cotton shirt and you're like hiking or something and you get lost, and you have to spend the night, if it gets damp, it holds moisture and that moisture makes you cold. And then you die of like hypothermia. Um, polyesters and synthetics and wools don't do that. So like, I'm just not a fan of like creating outdoor active wear that like could kill you. And it's also a, it's an inferior yarn too. It's, it's, it's less durable. It's really bad on the environment. It shrinks. The only thing going for it is it's super comfortable, you know, and it's cheap. Um, so like we always ask ourselves, like, how do we, replicate that but with things that are actually going to make you feel better and and you know saying keep you alive is very very dramatic and like we're selling socks so like luck we're probably not going to keep you alive but i'm just not a fan of like doubling down on things that are not the best thing we can be using
0: well, I don't want to keep you all day here. I'm very excited for you coming to C-Suite Mastermind. I think this podcast, just with our backlog right now, will probably come out after the actual event, um, but I'm really excited to be hosting these entrepreneurs there. And I think one of the things that we want everyone to be a little bit talking about is, uh, you know, what what's on your mind for Q4 this year? So if you want to, how could we, What what's on your mind this year for for Q4 2022?
1: Q4 is always really important for us as it is most, you know, direct-to-consumer brands, especially in the gifting space, like socks are a great gift. You know, like I said, there's a lot of things going for us in terms of the designs, the kind of like surprise element, the cost of it, as well as it's unisex, especially if you don't know like the size of someone or whatever. Um, so we have a very giftable product. So we look at Black Friday very seriously. It's where we'll make, you know, 20 to 30% of our annual revenue in like a week, right? So we take it very seriously. Some things we're thinking about this year doing differently and we've, we've learned a lot of lessons over the last few years. It's not really your time to spend a lot. You know, you do spend to kind of make sure you're getting it out there, like on Facebook and whatnot. But like we look at it as we generally break even or lose to acquire all year. And Black Friday is where we're making our lifetime values, where we're really cleaning up on kind of all the costs that we've laid out the, the prior, you know, nine, 10 months. And then the channels we're really pushing hard on is organic social, email, SMS. We're actually launching an app with Tapcart in the next week or so. So we're pretty bullish on that again, because like we have such a large customer base, I think just the ability to deliver on Black Friday a push notification is going to be something unique. So yeah, really going hard on that affiliate is going to be really exciting too. We're going to tweak the affiliate offer given the discounts on the site are going to be, you know, quite drastic. So like we'll have to figure out what's going to help people really get excited about sharing it. Black Friday for us is really just like pushing, like pulling every lever we have as hard as we can. Um, And we we make a really conscious effort not to do that any other time of the year. We've tried that before and learned, like, we've exhausted retained audiences, we've gone a little too hard. And we found it's almost impossible to artificially, unless you're Amazon and Prime Day or something, artificially create the Black Friday moment. So we just take a bit of an L sometimes up until that moment, and then just go all in on Black Friday. So that's advertising from there, like, we aim to keep things really simple. Like I talk about like consumer clarity is, is great. Like no discount codes, simple discount across site, simple copy. You know, we're just doing it this year. We're doing a 50% off site wide. Like we've tried to tier it before and like forecast and our margins support it. We know it works like, and it's a great time to load up on gifts, you know? And it's like, it's one time it's, we found it's, it's not devaluing for us. It's just like, it's a great opportunity. So they, we're pretty excited. The other thing that we made the change just today is, and kind of a realization I had and people can take what they want from it but we spent a lot of time over the last year in, in, in the business of trying to like offset uh historically slow days with like email campaigns or, or pulling different levers but then I realized is like are we better off just letting those slow days be slow and pull those levers on naturally busier days could we maximize the outcome of when people are already telling us they want to shop and where they're going to spend time um and that's generally for us it's the weekend is when people are like around maybe they're getting ready for that bike or like oh shit i don't have socks and they they're, they're maybe on our site or something like that so this year we're actually going to launch uh tbd and things can change you know i've changed my mind a lot but we're planning on launching on the weekend instead and i'm actually pretty bullish on that i think it's going to work because i think people will be sitting around and look if we usually launch on a Monday. We do like classic d to c Like, we're not launching just on Black Friday. We're going to, you know, we're going to be about a week early. But traditionally, we do it on a Monday. But that's like almost like the worst day because like everyone's just starting the work week. And are we going to expect people to like step back from their job? Because we, we sell out of things quite quickly too, right? So, when can we have the lowest friction moments? So that's another change we're making this year. It's just like we're going to launch on the weekend. I'll loop back with you right now it goes but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident based on what I'm seeing in our data and like every, every business is different too right So I, I think that'll be something unique and exciting.
0: It's a substantial offer too. you, you will you, you'll inherently stand out from the noise a little bit by doing a full 50% off on, on Black Friday. Very few brands I feel can have the unit economics to kind of pull that off.
1: Yeah luckily um, we've spent a, like a lot of hard work on, on developing the margins to do that as well as like it's a volume play at that point we know like the biggest hurdle in DTC is our shipping costs and we can outpace that hurdle, which stays fairly flat with raising AOV to a point. And so we're quite confident on the discount outpacing the, the biggest hurdle with volume. And we've, we've historically seen that happen. So like, yeah, even at that, that sale, it's a, uh, uh, it's not only where we make, the most revenue in our year. It's also where we make the most profit too. Badass. Because we'll spend so little too. We'll spend so little. We're, we're targeting like a, like a multi seven figure black Friday period. Um, and we'll spend one hundred or two hundred k.
0: Love to hear it.
1: I'll let you know if it works. I'm pretty confident though. Last year we did a we did single digit uh, seven figures and we spent uh, like like eighty k or something. So um, I think we can do it.
0: So here's my question then: If we were to just give you fifty k that you have to use uh, for the Black Friday period, would you just put it into you know into ads? Where would you put a fifty thousand dollar grant that you were just given for for over the next three months, say?
1: I would allocate it. 100% to affiliate offers, because if I didn't have to, if I didn't have to worry about that, I would, I would make it so, so appetizing for them that they would go nuts. Like again, it's such a great, it's a great, like the sale itself is amazing. The site's going to convert at 50% off. It's Black Friday, free shipping. It's everything's going for us. So if I could get more people, five x ROS. yeah, if
0: I, right. So you can not afford that, right? That's that's smart. If I had a
1: bank to pull from, I just load up my rewards bank for these people with 50k. I would go so hard on affiliate.
0: Yeah. Well, you heard it here first, folks get those affiliate programs cranking. Uh, thank you for coming on the D2C podcast today. This was really awesome.
1: Yeah, no, my pleasure. I've uh, been a fan and
0: uh, stoked to be on. And uh, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can do that right now at DirectToConsumerAllOneWord.co. all one word, dot co. I'm Eric Dick, and this has been the D2C podcast. We'll see you next time.